Good morning and welcome to chapel. If you could all please stand and join us in an opening song. Looking back on where we've been When our patience has worn thin Oh, when we've fallen into sin Our God was there Looking up at what's ahead We can shed all fear and dread If we believe what God has said God will be there Looking up at what's ahead, we can shed all fear and dread. If we believe what God has said, God will be there. Welcome to chapel. As we settle into this space and prepare to worship together, we light the Christ candle, asking God to be present to us today. This morning we will hear from Steve Nolt, a professor here in our history department. Steve will speak to us today about the ways that his work here at Goshen have impacted his faith journey. He's titled his sharing, Treasures Old and New, Reflections from a Historian's Journey of Faith. 
It's a particular privilege to hear from Steve this morning since he's in his last semester with us here at Goshen. As we consider themes of new and old, Steve has chosen this verse for us to reflect on this morning. As it is written in Matthew 13, 52, Jesus said to them, therefore every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of their storeroom new treasures as well as old. We invite you now to greet each other as we do in each chapel by passing the peace of Christ. Good morning to all of you. This parable from the end of uh, Matthew 13, after a day of teaching, Jesus concludes with this short parable, has always been a favorite of mine. Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of the treasure what is new and what is old. Bringing forth old and new, there's a tension there between old and new, maybe a tension that's particularly acute for those of us who have been shaped in North American culture, uh, in which the new is everywhere and almost always celebrated. And you can all finish the tagline that could be associated with just about any product being advertised. It's new and improved. If something is new, it obviously is better. Don't need any uh, explanation. It's just a given. Americans have been conditioned to think that, that what's new is better and that the past mostly just provides a bad example, uh, a counter illustration of how good we have it now or uh, a way of being grateful that we've uh, progressed so much further than the unenlightened people of the past. Well, this isn't an apology to be a history major, although attempting as that would be, I could go on, uh, on that, that line, but instead uh, an opportunity to think about old and new, think about my relationship with history in connection with my faith journey both here at Goshen, but actually throughout, throughout my life. It's a story that involves place and companions, perspective, disorientation, and grace. I don't have a memory of a particular moment when I first found old and new, the past, to be fascinating. I do know that growing up where I did, I was surrounded by a lot of physical reminders that I was a newcomer in a story that had started long before me and that involved a lot of other people than me. I was growing up in a place where there were physical structures, buildings that were 200 or 250 years old. There were tombstones that had names and dates of people who were born in the 1600s. My mother's family had lived in the same place since 1747, and when you dug in the dirt in our garden or uh, in the, the larger garden behind the garage, you would find uh, arrowheads that were uh, reminders of the Native Americans who had lived there long before them. All of these things um, placed me, put me in a place and made it clear that I wasn't the center of the story. I was only a recent addition in a tale that had many more characters and many more plot lines than I could know. And that these were all tied in with some understanding of my relationship with God, probably something that I couldn't have articulated as a child. 
but things that were significant about faith, that faith was a story. It was the story of a people of God. Faith was not just about me and God, but was something that was bigger, something in which I could have a part, something in which I had significant choices and responsibilities, but also it didn't entirely hinge on me. I didn't have to hold everything together. I didn't have to have all the answers. It was here long before me and it was going to continue long after I was gone. It had a durability that bore me and I did not have to alone bear the burden of bearing it. In that sense, place, the old and the new, could be confining, but it could also be liberating. And along that journey, there were friends, friends who helped to make sense of the old and the new. One was a a mentor in church. My my home church had a process of assigning mentors when when you entered um, junior high. And um, my mentor, uh, Joe, um, suggested that that we... um, that we read the Bible together, like read the entire Bible, which I hadn't done to that point, but like read all of it. Um, And along the way to just make a list of things, I was supposed to make a list and note things that didn't make sense. And he wasn't gonna try to answer those questions that I had or try to explain what didn't make sense or to justify why something should make sense that didn't, but just to list them and to maybe keep the list and look at it later because he said there would be other days when the things that didn't make sense right now would make sense later. And the things that I thought made sense right then, sometime later, wouldn't make any sense at all. I still have that list and I look at it sometimes and Joe was right. Some of the things then that seemed so simple, I don't believe anymore. And some of the things that didn't make any sense or were confusing are some of, the things that are most important to me now. In Genesis 28, we have a story of Jacob fleeing from his brother Esau, having a dream of a ladder ascending to heaven. And the next morning, Jacob awoke and said, truly the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. Often we don't recognize God's presence until later. God's presence with us and our later later realization of that are both types of grace. And our stories, old and new, and our reflections on those become a means of grace, a grace of not yet knowing what the end of the story will be, but having faith that the story has meaning. In that sense, old and new is also something that has uh, given me perspective. And maybe it seems funny to say that a historian is especially in need of perspective, But any of us involved in academics, I would argue, have a special need for perspective because perhaps only with the exception of farmers and tax accountants, people involved in academia as teachers or students are deeply conditioned to think in one-year periods of time. We plan in years, we talk in years, we accept the identity of years. From very early on, you talk to a young child and ask, who they are, they'll say, well, I'm a fourth grader. Some of you will identify yourselves first or second. A thing you say is, I'm a sophomore, I'm a junior. We identify ourselves in, in identities that are no longer than 12 months. A friend um, 
in South Bend some years ago, when I lived there some years ago, said, our tendency, and he meant for our, especially people involved in the world of, of, um, of academics, our tendency is highly to overestimate what we can do in one year and underestimate what we can do in five years. Sometimes it's said that after graduating from college, young people lose their urgent idealism, and maybe that's the case for some people. But I think it's also that graduates have been freed from the artificial and often unhealthy annualism that has uh, constricted or that potentially constricts all of us in the academic world. Annualism can give us a sense of, of urgency that can be empowering, can be good, but it can also be tiring. When we bring forth stories old and new, we can be grounded, we can gain perspective, we can receive the help of mentors, but we can also be disoriented. We can think, I thought I knew who I was. I thought I knew these, these old stories are supposed to be familiar, and, and now I'm surprised. They can remind us sometimes of how much we don't know, even about ourselves. We're forced to ask what to make of surprising stories. Sometimes surprises make us rethink how we tell other stories. Recently, I've been working with the stories of my home church and my home community, and I've been discovering how many things I didn't know about where I came from, and how many of the things that I thought I knew I now have to think about differently. What kind of stories don't we tell? I ran across this one from uh, the 1760s, when a uh, leading citizen of the town of Lancaster, where, where I grew up, a uh, leading citizen who happened to be a member of a Lutheran church, a storekeeper named Bernard Hubley, quote, struck an insolent Mennonite with a stone while Hubley and others were building a church. Quote, this resulted in the Mennonite's death about two weeks later. However, according to court uh, records, uh, Hubley's act was judged unpremeditated manslaughter and was handled in such a way that the court acquitted him without penalty because the Mennonite was drunk and was said at any hell, in any case to be at the point of death. Uh, I didn't quite know exactly what to do with that story. I wish there had been more detail uh, in, the, in the account. Um, this wasn't a story that Mennonites in my home church had uh, passed on or had, had told. Um, there's, of course, much about this story and the details surrounding the story that we don't know, but that lack of complete context is also part of the disorienting effect. When we bring out of, of the storehouse what is old and what is new in our individual lives, and in our collective lives, and in the story of the church, and the story of, our, of our, our faith communities. We recognize connections that we wish weren't there. We notice things that we wish were there. Stories of blatant racism. Stories from my family or from my church that I wish weren't there. And this is where bringing forth things old and new becomes not just an, an academic discipline, but also a kind of moral discipline to understand someone different from us who lived in a different context with different assumptions about life, stories that are mediated then to us through often faulty memories. History is a cross-cultural experience, the very ability to conceive of a time when men and women think differently from us, wrote the Israeli historian Yosef Yerushalami, be it in the past or the future is the fruit of historical consciousness. But unlike intercultural relationships in the present, where I might learn something about someone else 
in the process of engaging with them and perhaps them understanding more about me or opening up other possibilities for the two of us. In this case, in the case of thinking about and working with the past, the only thing open to change is me. The actors, unless I'm dealing with very recent history, are dead. We can't coerce events into a different direction. The events have happened, and so the seeking to understand another context, another culture, another person's motives is simply that, the discipline of listening and understanding someone else on their own terms without any possibility that my understanding or engagement will change them or will make them do something different or will make them understand me. It's challenging because sometimes the more we get to know other people in these disconcerting stories from the past, the more we disagree with them. The greater their blunders seem, the more embarrassing they are, the more we want to show them the error of their ways. But we can't. We are called only to further rounds of non-coercive understanding and then making changes in our own lives. Another reason, I believe, that God has called me and you to be stewards of an old yet new, a new yet old faith, a means of unsettling ourselves as a prelude for transformation. Transformation is difficult, and it's something that requires grace. One thing that we all share here, all of us at Goshen College, is that we're all involved in the world of academia. And academia runs on analysis and evaluation and judgment. And you and I are continually evaluating. I'm continually grading and passing judgments. You all are continually passing judgments on ideas and arguments in the classroom, in your reading, in your writing. The world of academia offers many gifts, but also some pitfalls, and this is one, that we can easily find ourselves appropriating an identity at our deepest being as that of an evaluator, or worse yet, of the evaluated. This is one of the perverse outcomes of critical thinking, an endless and hopeless sort of self-criticism. In the mid-1990s, when I was a graduate student, towards the end of a semester in church one Sunday morning in South Bend, the lectionary reading was from Isaiah 11, 3 and 4. God will not judge by what the eyes see or what the ears hear, but with, God, but with justice, God will judge those who need. And I began to cry because I was at that point, and I continue to today spend a good chunk of my day judging by what my eyes see and what my ears hear. That's part of my job. But that's not the deepest thing, and it must never become the deepest thing. The deepest thing that is both very old and always new is that God loves you and God remembers you. You know, I've said this in various classes, so some of you have heard this before. But one of the striking things about God revealed in the Bible is that God is always said to be remembering things. And this may at first seem curious until we recognize that the opposite of remembering in the Bible is not forgetting. The opposite of remembering is dismembering. 
Our human tendency is to dismember, to pull apart, to divide, to destroy. And remembering, in contrast, takes those broken fragments of our lives and our world and puts them together again. And that's why the Bible often shows us a God who remembers, not because we might otherwise fear God's forgetting, but because God is in the business of making things whole, of restoring things, remembering things, remembering us who are so often dismembered and dismembering one another. All our fragments, our pieces, our incompleteness, nothing is lost on the breath of God. I'd like to leave you with a blessing, a blessing from a poet and an artist and a Methodist minister named Jan Richardson, introduced to me by my wife, Rachel, who reads Jan's books and, and blog. Richardson uses old texts from the lectionary tradition and renders them in new language and new images. And this is a poem that she wrote this year for Lent from the text in Luke 4, in which Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Beloved is where we begin. If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave this place without hearing who you are. You are beloved, named by the one who has traveled this path before you. Do not go from this place without letting it echo in your ears. And if you find that today it is hard to let that into your heart, do not despair. That is what the journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger, from fear, from hunger or thirst, from the scorching sun or the fall of the night. But I can tell you that on this path there will be help. I can tell you that on this path there will be rest. I can tell you that you will know the strange graces that come to our aid only on a road like this, that fly to meet us, bearing comfort and strength, and come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves towards our ear and with their curious insistence, whisper our name. Beloved, beloved, beloved. As our response, we're going to sing number 121 in the Purple Hymnal, Nothing is Lost on the Breath of God. This is one of Steve's favorite hymns, and he requested that we sing it today, so we're going to.
respond to Steve's message with a litany and then follow with a closing song. When we hold out our hands at the end of each stanza, please join in saying, we journey together. We gather together the strands of our hectic lives and offer each other, this day, a sacred pause. We journey together. We venture out of our safe secretariness, our ingrained routines, our winter blues, to acknowledge our individual and shared journeys. We journey together. We come for many reasons. Some we don't understand. We come from habit, from instinct, from choice, curiosity. We come to celebrate, give thanks, to share in community. We journey together. We come with hearts heavy at the news of our world, a world fraught with wars, terror, wall building, injustices surround us and threaten to overwhelm. We journey together. We also come with joy and with hope. We come to learn and grow, to challenge ourselves to build a better world through faith and love. We journey together. We come in our 21st century lives to retell stories of the past, to gain meaning from words of wisdom, to seek God's face in our day and every day. We journey together. Our paths crisscross back and forth. We cannot see where our roads may lead, but we look for treasures old and new along the way, supporting each other through the journey. Amen. As our sending song, please join and sing number 579 in the blue hymnal, Lift Every Voice and Sing. <laughs> 